going to be in 1 Peter this morning. Chapter 2, we've spent the last couple of weeks in our 10 o'clock Bible study hour looking at the first 10 verses of this chapter. And Peter, three different times in this chapter, calls our Lord precious. He was precious to Peter. And now he moves on to how we should live in this chaotic, messed up world that we live in. A world that is not always your friend. A world that doesn't always want to see you succeed. A world that isn't always thrilled about the choices and decisions that you make. And ultimately, what Peter is going to show them, and us, is how we can best have an impact on this world through the way we respond when we are maligned and mistreated by what we do. Our words are important, but our actions are important. It was the poet Emerson who said, your actions speak so loud that I cannot hear what you're saying. And Peter is going to talk about our actions here. Chapter 2, 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse number 11. Dearly beloved, I beseech you, as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Would you like to see some unbelievers that you know become believers? Would you like to see some of the people perhaps who mistreat you, who lie about you, who, have, who just give you a hard time? Would you like to see them one day glorifying God? That, that's what Peter's teaching us here, how, how we can be a part of that. That whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word and how it, the impact that it has. The incorruptible word that, that birthed us into your family, that instructs us and teaches us and nourishes us. And Lord, I pray that today that... In the next short while that we would open our ears to, to you, to your word, our hearts and our minds would be open to being taught, not by me, but by the Spirit of God who is teaching us through his word. Lord, we pray that you would uh, just make an impact on each one of us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Note the intimate language that he begins with verse 11 dearly beloved these people were dear to him to peter even though geographically they were far away from him they were near to his heart you don't have to be a greek scholar to understand that he had a deep love for the people to whom he was writing and that's the way god intends for his family to view each other god intends for brothers and sisters in Christ, the family of God, to love one another dearly. When we hear sad news or good news from a fellow brother in Christ or a sister in Christ, we ought, to, we ought to rejoice in the good news with them like we would with our own flesh and blood, brother and sister. And when we hear sad news, we ought to 
sorrow with them just like we would with our own flesh and blood brother and sister because we are the family of God. We are to weep with those who weep and, and, and rejoice with those that rejoice. That is the mark, after all, of true discipleship. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one to another. Love for one another is, is, the, is the one characteristic above all else that will show everybody, show the world that we are Christ's disciples. Dearly beloved. And then he calls them strangers and pilgrims, foreigners, sojourners. They're, they're travelers. And, and all of us who are in Christ are foreigners in this place where we live. Philippians 3.20, uh, 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 Paul said that we are, our, our conversation, or our life, everything about us is, even though we're living here, our, our life, our conversation, our citizenship is in heaven. When you, be, when you were adopted by God, this is not his home. When you were adopted by God, you, were, you took on a different citizenship as well. You took on the citizenship of heaven, a, a, a place that was built by God. And as we will see, the recipients of this letter were a people who were not welcome in their own homes. They were scattered, a scattered people. Because they were living in one culture, but their citizenship was in another, another culture. They were living one way, but they were living a lifestyle that was based on another place, a, a heavenly place. I, I've, never, I've never lived in another country, but I know that if I were to move to another country and try to bring all of the American culture and all of the uh, American lifestyle and the uh, American values and customs, the thing that I've grown up with, and I tried to bring them into another country, they, and especially if I tried to put those American customs onto those nationals in these other countries, they wouldn't be accepted, right? It wouldn't be very well accepted. That's, but that's, that's how we are here. We're, we're, we're citizens of another country. We're living with the values of another country, and yet we're trying to bring that into this world where we live, and, and we're not accepted because of that. We have heavenly customs that we're trying to live by, and yet we're not accepted because of we're not in heaven. Jesus said this in, in John chapter 17 when he was praying to his father. They, talking about the disciples, talking about his, his church, talking about us, they are not of this world even as I am not of this world. As, as people of God, we, will do, we would do well to view this life as temporary. This world where we live is not our home. We're just, just sort of passing through, right? We're just sojourners. We're foreigners. We live here, but we're living for another place. If you're in 1 Peter, hopefully you all are, turn just a couple of pages to the right to 1 John. Chapter 2, verse 15, John said, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You cannot love this world, the customs, the culture of this world, and love the Father as well. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life... It's not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. So Peter, in this letter, is reminding 
his hearers, he's reminding us who we are because it's easy to forget. It's easy to forget that this world is not our home, isn't it? I don't, maybe it's not for you, but for me, it's easy to forget that this isn't really, just because I was born here, this isn't my home. I'm, I'm a foreigner. I'm a sojourner. I'm a traveler. I'm a stranger in this place. And just as they needed a reminder, we need frequent reminders. Because the way that we see ourselves greatly affects how we live. The way that I, if I, if I see myself as a, as just a human being, this is my home, this is where I start, this is where I end, then I'm going to want to take on all of the tendencies of all of the other people around me, the world system around me, because this is my home. But when we see ourselves for who we truly are as citizens of heaven, then that's the way that we want to live. How we see ourselves affects how we live. Back in 1 Peter, chapter 2, notice the plea of Peter in verse number 11. Dearly beloved, I beseech you. I plead with you. I'm, I'm begging you, Peter says. So whatever Peter is about to ask them to do, he sees as being extremely important. I'm begging you. What's he begging them to do? What's this request that he sees as being so important? Abstain, he says, from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Abstain from these fleshly lusts. Another way to say it would be say no to all of the unholy, carnal affections, all the desires that are trying to pull you away. You got to say no to them because this, this world that you're, try, that you're giving into is not your home. You have a greater place awaiting you. So you're just a foreigner. So say no to your own fleshly desires. And we all have fleshly desires desires, don't we? I'm, I'm sure if we all took about five seconds, we could come up with some things that, some desires, some appetites within us that pop up frequently, that are calling for our attention, and we know they're unholy appetites. We know they're not Christ-like thoughts and attitudes, but they keep coming up. They're fleshly desires. Everyone is different. For some, it may be anger. For some, bitterness. For some immoral thoughts and desires, greed, bitterness, all of these things. And what Peter is trying to do is convince these people that he loves dearly how vile and ugly these desires within them are. And the damage that they'll do if left unchecked. These are not just pets that maybe have an accident from time to time, and we, we can just train them. If we just train them, then we can all live together in perfect harmony. Everything will be okay. We just, we just need to kind of get them under control a little bit. They're not insignificant pleasures that we can just enjoy from time to time. But then at some point, we got to cut them off and say enough is enough. He says abstain from fleshly lusts. Everything in moderation does not apply to these fleshly lusts that Peter is talking about. These aren't things that we can excuse and just say, that's just the way that I am. I was born that way. It was passed down from my father or my mother or my grandparents. We can't just say, Satan, Satan made me do it. The devil made me do it. The enemy that, that Peter is talking about here is not Satan. It's not the enemy. 
The enemy that he's talking about is you, your own fleshly desires. My primary enemy is, is the one that I look at in the mirror every day, multiple times. He is public enemy number one to me. He's out to get me. My flesh is out to hurt me. He's warring on my soul. And the same is true with you. These fleshly appetites, they're not our friends. They desire your destruction. So we have to abstain from them. Avoid them altogether. Complete abstinence. Don't, don't play with them. Don't allow them in moderation. Don't attempt to tame them. Abstain. Maybe we should print that as a poster all over our house. Don't tame, abstain. And how do we do that? How do we, how do we abstain? How do we learn to abstain from these desires? Because no doubt, all of us recognize the things within us that are unholy, and we've at least at one point or another tried to abstain. We've tried to give them up. We've tried to stop, and yet they keep finding themselves back again. So how do we do this? Let me just give you two suggestions. Number one, place your dependence on Christ. See, the bad news is you cannot, on your own, resist your carnal appetites. You cannot do it. You probably already know that because you've tried and failed. That's the bad news. You can't do it on your own. But, but the good news is you don't have to do it on your own because Christ lives in us. In 2 Corinthians 5, Jason was reading from this, this uh, a book earlier in Sunday school, and it's just a, an awesome, awesome chapter. Um, you ought to spend some time in it. But, it but, but, but Paul ends the chapter, 2 Corinthians 5, like this. For he hath made him to be sin for us. A lot of pronouns there. He, God, hath made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin for us, you and I, who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God's love was, was so extravagant for you and for me that he sent his only son who he loved dearly to this earth to take your sins and my sins, the very fleshly desires that we're talking about abstaining from right now. God loved you so much that he sent his own son to come and to hang on a cross to take those very desires and sinful appetites and, give, and, and the sins that we give into so often upon his sinless body in order that we could be made the righteousness of Christ. That's the great exchange. You were sinful, he was perfect. He came to earth, took your sin on him, and gave you his righteousness. What a deal. What a deal. And now, we don't live in that sinful condition anymore. We don't, we don't live in that shame of sin because we are now righteous in him. We are holy. We are saints. Again, a proper understanding of who we are affects the way that we live. Knowing what Christ did for us and knowing who we are now in him will compel us more than anything else to live for him and to want to abstain from these sinful lusts. Why should I give in to sin when I'm a new creature? Before I was a new creature, I didn't have a choice. That was my nature, but now I have a new nature. Why should I give in to sin when my new nature is holy? 
Why should I give in to sin? It's one thing if this is my, this is my life and I'm going to die and I'm going to go in the earth and that's the end, but this is not my home. Uh, my home is in heaven. So why, if, if heaven is perfection and holy and righteousness, then, then why would I want to give in to my fleshly desires here knowing that this isn't even my home. My home is up there. I'm living for another country. How we see ourselves affects how we live. When John Bunyan was in prison, he's the writer of Pilgrim's Progress. He was in prison and for preaching the gospel. And while he was there, some, some, some church leaders came to him and they said to John Bunyan, John, you can't, you can't keep going telling people that, that, that Christ's righteousness has been credited, been credited to them in full because if they, if they believe that, then they'll feel like that they can just go out and do whatever they want. To which John Bunyan replied, if people really see that Christ's righteousness has been given to them entirely as a gift, they'll do whatever he wants. When we, when we understand what Christ did for us and who he made us to be, it causes us to want, more than anything else, to want to live for him. And I have to constantly remind myself of that all of the time. That it's not what I can do, it's what he's already done. It's what he's already done. You can't abstain through willpower alone. We can't abstain because we're in Christ and because the Holy Spirit is in us. That's how we're able to abstain. So number one, how do we abstain? Number one, place your dependence in Christ completely. Not in your ability, not in your schedule, not in this new, these new parameters or guardrails that you've set, although those things are good. We ought to do those things as well, but don't put your dependence in on your own ability to be able to abstain because on your own you can't. Place your full dependence on him. Number two, be ready to repent. If we commit this morning to abstaining from certain appetites which are unholy, does that mean we'll never give in to one again? Sorry to tell you, but it doesn't mean that. You may. You may not. Men, if you commit this morning to start abstaining, you're going to abstain from ever looking on a woman again to lust after her and therefore committing adultery with her in your heart. You're going to commit today to never doing that again. Does that mean you'll never have those desires again? No, it doesn't. But when you do have those desires, be ready to repent. Be ready to repent immediately and often. Before you give in to the desire, repent of the desire that's in your mind. Whatever it is that you, whatever it is, the thing that came into your mind when we started talking about abstaining from these fleshly lusts, whatever it was that came into your mind, decide today, I'm going to be, first of all, by, by, by God's help, the Holy Spirit living within me, I'm, gonna tr I'm going to be who he's called me to be, holy. But if I do begin to have these fleshly desires, or when I begin to have these fleshly desires, by grace, I'm going to immediately repent before I ever give into it. Sin always begins with the desire, right? James said it like this in James 1.14. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Think about that temptation in the garden, the, the serpent, the temptation. Then, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. There's the eating of the fruit. 
And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. That's the end game. That's the end game of Satan. That's the end game of your flesh is death. And then James goes on to say this. Do not err, my beloved brethren. In other words, don't be so foolish as to think that this doesn't apply to you. Don't be so foolish as to think that you can give in to your lust and it won't end in death. Do not err because I love you. My beloved brethren, do not err on this. Don't think you're strong enough to give in to your temptations without them ultimately overcoming you because you are not. So when the desire comes to satisfy our sinful appetites, what should we do? Repent immediately. Claim the promise that greater is he that is in me than he that's in the world and decide by faith to live the holy life that I'm called to. Immediately. This morning or, or this week when I was, when I was studying, um, I was in my office and I went upstairs and I looked out my window and, and off in the distance I saw, uh, well first I was warned by my kids and then I saw off in the distance my dad was doing some burning Two of his favorite pastimes are chainsaws and fire, and um, he was indulging in both of them. And I had this thought on my mind, this message on my mind, and, and I got to thinking about how, how you know, if, if you were to go out there and, and you see a couple of weeds out in the woods just sort of popping up here and there, they're very easy to control, right? You can get a, a trimmer, a weed eater, you could even get a pair of scissors when they're, when they're babies, and cut them down, and it's, it's easy to do. But if you let them go for a while, now they're not just little blades of grass. Now they've become thorns. They become uh, uh, thicker branches. And soon, if you let them go long enough, they become trees, and they're very difficult. And then you've got to get chainsaws and fire to get rid of them. And that really is the way that it is with sin. When something is small, when it begins, when that desire comes, what we ought to do immediately is just confess it and, and ask God to forgive us of that sin. But, but if we let it go, grow and, and, and grow and grow, then it becomes this unwieldy thing and ultimately brings death. So repent, even before the lust conceives. And if you give in to that sin, then what? Then repent. Repent of the sin that you've committed. Always be repenting. Don't allow the shame of, of your failure to keep your word or, or, or don't allow the shame of your failure to keep God's word to keep you from being willing to humble yourself and, and repent to God for what you have done. Always be repenting. Put all your trust in Christ, first of all, and then when you fail and you will, repent. God blesses that. Now, why should we abstain? We saw that. That, that sin brings forth death, ultimately. There are a lot of reasons why, why we should not give in to those fleshly appetites. But here we say, here we see, rather, in 1 Peter, why saying no to our own sinful appetites is, is for our own good. Verse 11, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. There's a war going on. It's a military campaign, an all-out all assault on your soul by your own flesh. Can you imagine? And Peter, because of his love for these people, is begging them to say no. Say no to the thing that is trying to destroy you. It doesn't have your best interest in mind. Your flesh does not want you to succeed. Your flesh wants you to die. It's not an occasional battle. It doesn't 
It doesn't just pop every once in a while. It's, it's prolonged, ongoing. It's a war. It's warring against your soul, and it's not going to stop. In Galatians 5, Paul said, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these things are contrary, the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. Our spirit and our flesh are always fighting against each other. Always fighting against each other. It's a war. And when we lose this battle, we, we experience frustration. We experience shame. We can experience depression. Relationships are fractured and broken. Families are torn apart. And ultimately, it will destroy us. It may seem like a small thing. Just giving in occasionally. Just giving in here and giving in there. But ultimately, it will destroy us. It will destroy those around us. Remember, James said, sin, when it's finished, bringeth forth death. Every single time. So that's the negative portion of this plea. Say no to your own sinful desires. Now here's the positive. Verse 12. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles. Our conversation has to do with our speech, as you might expect, but it's much more than that. It's our lifestyle. It's, 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 it's all-encompassing. It's who we are. It's how we conduct ourselves. And Peter tells them to live honestly. And the word honest, if you were to look it up in a, in a Bible dictionary, the Greek word is kalos, and here are some definitions because it's, it's, more, than just, it's more than just telling the truth. These are some words that you would find if you were to look this up in a, in a dictionary. Beautiful to look at. Excellent. Choice. Precious. Commendable. Admirable. The idea is that if we're going to have an impact on the culture around us, not only do we have to live righteously, but exceptionally. Live so that your people notice God in you. Hiding in a bubble will not accomplish this. If you, if you talk about God all the time at work, but you're always gossiping about the people around you or you act like a jerk, then this is not the honest, beautiful life that, that Peter's talking about. It doesn't matter if you announce that you're a Christian if you never act like one. He's saying live honestly, righteously, in a, in a way that people look at and say, wow, that is different. I've not seen that before. Lots of people come to work on time, but that one's different. Live honestly. And then he said, among the Gentiles. The Gentiles are people who do not know the Lord. They may have, they may have rejected God. They may have just not yet believed on him. But they're unbelievers either way. So he says, we're to be honest, live honestly, live righteously, live beautifully. Among the Gentiles. It's impossible to, to live an exemplary life among unbelievers if we never expose ourselves to unbelievers. We have to interact with those unlike us in order to show the love of God to them. And, and that requires more intentionality from some of us than others. Some of you are surrounded every single day when you go to work by unbelievers, by people who mock Christ 
People who mock you because of your faith in Christ, you're surrounded all the time. And, and, but, but the truth is, even though that may drag on your soul from time to time, you have a greater opportunity to shine a light for the Lord, as Peter is saying here. But for the rest of us that are not surrounded all the time by unbelievers, we have to be a little more intentional about placing ourselves in environments where, where people don't know Christ. And when you spend time around unbelievers with the goal of pointing them to Jesus, you're not always going to be accepted, right? The, the, the unbelievers are not always going to sit back and clap and say, yes, finally, finally, a Christian has come in here to preach to us. This is what we've always wanted. It doesn't always work that way. If you're familiar with 1 Peter, you know that the people that he's writing to were scattered, not because they just wanted to plant churches all over the world, but because they were persecuted, because they had been lied about, because, because they were believers in Jesus Christ. These are some of the words that Peter used to describe them in chapter 1. He said they were in heaviness through manifold temptations or trials. He called what they were going through the trial of faith, being tried with fire. Peter likened what they were going through to being placed into a furnace of fire. They've been through it. The world has never been kind to followers of Jesus. John chapter 1 said about Jesus, He was in the world, the world knew him not, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. Even his own people rejected him. So why would you think they would accept us? And yet, we're to continue to live righteously in this hostile world, a world that is hostile towards the one that we follow. For what purpose? To what end? Verse 12, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they lie about you, they slander you, they gossip about you, even though they're speaking against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. None of us would ever ask for enemies. We would never ask for trials. We would never ask for people to lie about us and slander us. But you have a greater opportunity to glorify God when you're being slandered than when you don't. When you're being lied about than when you don't. And those who fight against you, or they're not really fighting against you. They're fighting against the one that you follow. They're fighting against the one that you serve. And so the goal, when, we're, when we expose ourselves, whether intentionally or unintentionally, to people who are unbelievers who are hostile towards us and towards the one that we follow, and they're slandering us and, and, and blaspheming the name of Jesus, the goal for us should not be to prove that we're not really who they say they are. That's not the end goal. The, the goal is not that we can prove our innocence. The goal is not that we can make them look bad. Maybe we can make them a little worse than they can make us. Our goal should always be God's glory. That, they, that God will receive glory. Whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God. Jesus spoke similar words in Matthew 5 when he said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. Your good works are visible. You're publicly doing good works. And what? Glorify your Father which is in heaven. That is the end. The end goal is always that God will receive the glory. When somebody lies about you 
or hurt you with their words, your natural desire is to bring them harm because you're a human being. Our natural desire is to hurt them. To they, they hurt me, I'm going to return it by hurting them. They hurt my family, I'm going to return it by hurting them. They blaspheme my God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to return it on them. That's always our, our natural desire, to cause them the same hurt that they've caused us, or maybe give them a little more hurt than they caused us. That way they know never to do that again. But as believers, we don't do what comes naturally. We're new creatures. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. The old person, the old you might have done that, but this is not the new you. You're living for another country now. You don't live like worldlings. You live like a heavenly, heavenling. <laughs> Would you turn back a few pages to the book of Romans? Chapter 12. You may feel alone sometime, but just know that many before you have been persecuted and mocked for their belief. Romans chapter 12, verse 19. What do we do when people mistreat us? Dearly beloved, we keep seeing that language, don't we? Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves. Well, but how are they going to learn their lesson? Someone's got to teach them. Well, he's going to give us, he's going to give us the answer. Avenge, yourself, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place under wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. That, that was your enemy, by the way, in case you missed that. If your enemy hunger, what should you do? Well, what comes around goes around. Right? That's, what, that's the natural man. But the spiritual man feeds him. If he thirsts, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. You're really going to shock him if you do this. Be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. We can allow the evil in this world, and especially the evil done against us, to overcome us if we're not careful, can't we? But what Scripture, what Christ is calling us to do is the exact opposite of what we naturally want to do. So what if we do give in to our natural tendencies? What if somebody mistreats you? What if somebody is being hostile towards God, and you give in to your natural tendencies. You, you maybe revenge, you lash out at them, you talk about them, you expose all of the secrets in their life. What comes of that? The, the tension grows stronger, for one. Their hatred towards Christ will become greater because now you've just proven what they've been saying about you, that Christians aren't any better than anybody else. They just think that they are, which makes them actually worse. And you're just proving that to be true. But what if, as Peter writes about, and, and as Paul instructed in Romans 12, what if we instead overcome evil with good? What if we show good works despite the way they treat us? Back to 1 Peter. Verse 12. 
Whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, because of your exemplary lifestyle, because you've been holy, because you've been abstaining from the, the, the lusts, the things that you desire because of that, because of your honest conversation, that they may, by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Do you want to reach your neighbor for Christ? Do you want to reach your coworker, your husband or your wife or your children or your parent, the one who's not yet a believer? Maybe they're hostile towards you. Maybe they, they're, they're, they're angry with you because you, you, seem to be, you seem to be more occupied with Christ than you are with them and, 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 and following him seems more important than them. Do you want to reach these people? We're not told to, to quote the Romans road to them. We're not told to memorize a, a, a gospel uh, uh, sales pitch to give to them. We know that we should be vocal witnesses for Christ, but what he's saying here is, what he's saying here is if you want Peter, if you want these people one day to glorify God, they'll do that simply because of the way you respond to adversity. Simply because you're willing to live a holy life in an unholy place. Because you're willing to show good works to those that have lied about you. Used you. Maybe as we've considered the passage today, there's someone that's been on your mind. Maybe a lot of someone's. Maybe it's a family member or co-workers and they're always on your case. They lie about you. They're always trying to hurt you. They're trying to get you stirred up. They're trying to, they, they just want to get you going. They, they, want, they, they want your temper to get exposed so that they can say, ha, told you. Today, let's decide with the, with the Lord's help to overcome evil with good. Don't be overcome. Don't be so weighed down and bogged down and burdened down. I just can't take it. I'm trying to live right. And it just, everybody's out to get, everybody's out to get me. We can be overcome and discouraged. But well, what he said in Romans is don't be overcome with evil, but instead overcome that evil with good. Display good works despite the way they treat you. Live righteously. Decide, I'm going to live righteously even though I'm, I'm, I'm in, an, I'm in an, a, a, an unrighteous place. I recognize that we're foreigners. I'm just, I'm just visiting here. God, God, didn't, God didn't put me here to get along with everybody. God put me here in, in this. He, he sent me here, gave me a new citizenship, and now I'm just here trying to point people to him, to glorify him. Everything's not always going to be rosy, but my eternity is not going to be spent here. It's not going to be spent in the, in the ground. It's going to be spent in heaven with him. Trust him. Depend on him. Trust his work on the cross. That glorious, sweet exchange. His victorious resurrection from the dead. Trust his power to enable you to abstain from these things that have been weighing you down and warring against you. And decide to live for God the way he intended for you to live. On your own, you'll fall. You will. Set up as many guardrails as you want to, as many, as, as many accountability structures as you want to. Set them up, but, but ultimately, if we try to do it on our own, we're going to fail. God uses those things, but ultimately, we need to put our complete dependence upon him for all that we do in this life. Our complete dependence is on him. Commit today. Decide today, I'm going to abstain. God, you, I am holy. I'm not, 
I'm not unholy. You've made me to be holy. I'm going to live that way. I'm going to stop living like all of my friends live. This, this may be their world, but this is not my world. I'm living for another kingdom. And perhaps as we've talked this morning, as I've talked and you've been thinking, you know, I don't, I don't know that I am. I don't know that I am a part of that kingdom. I, I, don't, know that I, I don't know that I do have a home, an, another home, not made with hands. I don't know that I've ever been adopted. I don't know that I've ever believed. I don't know that I've ever repented of my sin. I don't know. I don't know. How, how, I've tried to live righteously, but I've been doing it completely on my own. Perhaps today is the day that you stop trying and you just repent of your sin and trust God once and for all. Trust the work of Christ on the cross to save you, to, to trust the, the seed that's being planted from the word of God to, to sprout within you. To, and, and to birth you into the family of God. And then, and then, you, don't have, then, you, don't live, then you don't live righteously and abstain from sin on your own. You've got, a, you've got someone living within you that enables you to do the things that you ought to do, the things that we should do. The Holy Spirit living within us. If you're not saved, if you're not sure if you're saved, if you're having doubts, if you're wondering, don't question. Don't put it off. Don't say, I'm going to figure this out one of these days. Today. Trust him today. Be saved today. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Would you bow your heads with me? I'm going to pray. When I finish praying, and even before, if you'd like to, you're invited to come. You can pray at the front. You can pray in your seat. I'll be here if you need someone to talk to. However, this passage has hit you today as a believer who's been struggling under the weight of of persecution at work as someone who has been giving in over and over and over to your temptations and you're seeing the damage that it's doing in your life and in your family as someone who's never accepted christ never been saved however wherever this finds you today give in don't resist surrender to the lord father your word is so powerful and I pray that now, Lord, that, that, that you would do a work through the Holy Spirit to revive those in this building who have strayed away from you, who have been giving in to their unholy desires. Lord, I pray that they would see from your word the damage that is being done and the damage that will be done. And Lord, that you would equip each one of us to abstain, to live a holy life in this unholy world. I pray for those that are struggling to live righteously, they're being overcome with evil, God, that they could be, a sh- going forward, Lord, they would be a shining light to, to their community, at work or at home. Help us to live righteously. Lord, I pray for the ones that here that are not, they're not saved, they don't know that they're saved, Lord, that today would be the day of salvation for them. Give, I pray that you and your grace would visit them today.